was all right church family let's go ahead and open up our bibles to ephesians chapter 5 if you don't have a bible you're welcome to use the bible in the pew in front of you is my mic on i don't hear myself yeah good to go can you guys hear me out there not really some people are saying not really huh no it's on yeah well turn me up a little bit I can't barely hear myself. All right. Ephesians chapter 5. Now this is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, uh, part 2. The reason why we're doing a part 2 is because two weeks ago we went through the first half of these verses. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 21. Now, Just a little bit of review so that we can all make sure we're on the same page here. Last time we were in these verses, we saw that Paul was telling us how to live carefully in the world, how to be wise and how to not be foolish. And I broke that down into two categories. I said, as a Christian, you can live your life as a careful Christian or as a careless Christian. And the main difference that Paul highlights here in these verses between those two is what you're going to put yourself under the influence of, right? So Paul uses the example or the illustration of wine and drunkenness to drive home this point. He says, don't be drunk with wine. That is, don't fill yourself up with wine and become drunk and put yourself under the influence of alcohol, but rather put yourself under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit and be under His influence. Let let Him be the main influencer in your lives. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and see together in the text how we live when we are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Let's let's read all of the verses, though, for context. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's Word. It's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you every minute, every hour, every day, every week. But as we sit here and listen to your word, so many things can get in the way. So we need you to clear the way for your word to do its work in our hearts, to change us, to make us more like your son, Jesus. Help us to not just be hearers of the word as we sit in these pews, but to be doers of the word, to take what we receive from you here today and to move out and obey it faithfully. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, I love having kids. It's amazing. It's also really humbling. One of the fastest ways that your kids can humble you is when they ask you what a certain word means, right? And it would be, it would make sense if it was embarrassing. Like, if your kids asked you uh, what a big academic word meant, you probably wouldn't be as ashamed when you couldn't explain it to them, right? But usually our kids ask us, what very simple words mean, words that we use all the time that we supposedly understand but have no idea how to explain to them. So, you know, your kid comes up to you and says, Daddy, what does the word is mean? How do you explain that? You don't say, oh, it's the third person 
singular of the verb to be. You just, you don't say that. You go, uh, it's hard to explain. Well, what if they ask you a theological question, right? That's also pretty humbling. Your kids ask you questions about the Trinity. Well, if Jesus is God, how is God God? Or if we put money in the plates, how does it get to Jesus in heaven, right? These are all very complicated questions. People have written voluminous volumes, voluminous volumes, I said, on that. I wonder what, how you would respond if your child asked you what the word worship means. I think it's safe to say that most Christians who use the word worship use it as a synonym for singing, right? So it's, it's not uncommon to hear, and maybe you've said it yourself, oh yeah, that church was okay, but their worship was really great. Or the preaching was really good, but man, I didn't like their worship. Or man, how was church this morning? The worship was really on point, right? You probably said that, heard somebody say that. If a child were to ask you what worship is, how would you respond? What would you tell them? And would your response be accurate according to the Bible? In the New Testament, we see that worship is singing, but it's also so much more than singing. So if you consider Paul's words in Romans 12, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So you're giving up your entire life to God is worship. So from this text and a few others, uh, I think a good pocket-sized definition is something like this. Worship is how we respond with our words and our actions when we are responding in gratitude to gospel realities, right? Worship is how we respond with our words and our works to God's great salvation. This worship, when it's rightly understood, is something that we do both individually and corporately. It's something that individually we do when we're taking our kids to the bus stop in the morning, as we catch up on our favorite Netflix show, as we sit and talk with our wives over dessert. You know, I, I think that when I sit down with a pint of Ben and Jerry's, that's an act of worship. Amen. But worship crescendos when we come together as one body in the local church. Our Sunday mornings are the apex of our worship experience every week. That's when the church scattered turns into the church gathered. That's when the voice of the many becomes the voice of one. It's when the disparate members of the body come together like the Power Rangers superhero guy, you know, and like the tiger, and the, they all come together and form the body with Christ as its head. And one of the main things that Christians do when we get together is sing. God's people have been coming together to sing praises to God in response to his grace for as long as we have been a people. So in this service, I tried to show you through all of those scriptures that we read together that uh, from the beginning of the Bible story all the way to the end of the Bible story, whenever God's people receive God's grace, they respond to him in song. So one of the first things that God did after he rescued his people, uh, Israel, from Egypt, was he gathered them together, he sat them down like a bunch of little kids, and he says, let me teach you a song. You have the song of Moses and Miriam. And that was a song celebrating the great salvation that they had received. Fast forward a couple centuries, after the Israelites returned from exile, 70 years under the discipline of God, when they came back into the land, the first thing that they did was 
appoint temple musicians to lead God's people in song. The third longest book of the Bible, the Psalms, is a composition of prayers and songs for God's people in their life together. The last thing that Jesus did with his disciples before going to the cross to pay the price for our sins was sing a hymn with them. The apostles, as we read in Acts just now, as our sister Amber read in Acts, the first thing that they did, their knee-jerk reaction to suffering and persecution as they're sitting there in the jail is to sing a hymn to God. We even read in Zephaniah this morning that God sings in delight over his people. God thinks about you here this morning gathered together and he's up in heaven singing songs about how much he loves you. I wouldn't be surprised if the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were singing love songs to each other for all of eternity. Even when you move outside of the New Testament, right early on in church history, we see that one of the first things that people come to know about Christians is that they are people who love to sing. So you have this guy, Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor. He's writing to Emperor Trahan, his boss, right? And he, you know, these Christians, they're, they're causing a little bit of hubbub. There's, there's some problems. And this is about 50 years after Paul was executed, about 20 years after John wrote the book of Revelation. And Pliny writes to his boss and he says, these Christians, they meet on the Lord's Day before daybreak to sing hymns to Christ as to a God. Christians are known to get together to sing to Jesus. That's just what they do. And in this morning's text, we see that as the church is filled with more and more of God's Spirit, the overflow of that filling is to respond to that filling, that grace, by singing. So let's go back and read verses 18 and 19 again. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I think in the book of Colossians, Paul says the same thing, just a slightly different way. He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. And last time I preached on this, I argued that that's the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. Paul's using almost the exact same language. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? How? with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So I think it's pretty clear that we as Christians are supposed to respond to God by singing. But how we sing and what we sing is just as important as the act of singing itself. There is such a thing as worship that is not acceptable. There is worthy worship, and then there is worthless worship. And as God's people, we kind of all too often fail to consider how God wants us to worship, how he has commanded us to worship in his word. Have you ever heard anyone say that when we sing, we're supposed to just sing to an audience of one? You ever heard that? Just an audience of one. I actually think that there's a song that's really entitled that, Audience of One. That's one of those things that, it, man, it just feels like it has to be right. Right? God's the only person that we're singing to. Amen? Well, I mean, I get how people get there. I understand why that has become popular. Especially when you think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. 
He's talking about all these hypocritical ways that people worship, right? They pray in order to be heard. They give in order to be seen. They fast and they make it pretty obvious. Their, their sacrifices are really just a show for everyone to look at them and see how pious they are. It's the ancient Near Eastern version of uh, virtue signaling, okay? So you would look at that and you would say, oh man, we definitely can't worship like that. Let's make sure that our worship only has an audience of one. But... There are other places in Scripture, like our text this morning, that tell us that there are times that when we worship God, like specifically when we sing to each other, excuse me, when we sing together, that we should be thinking about other people around us just as much as we're thinking about God. So that's kind of the point of the sermon, so I'm going to say it again. When we sing together as a church, we should be thinking about the people around us as much as we think about God. Look at verse 19 again. When we're filled with the Spirit and we sing, we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're addressing one another as we sing. And we also make melody to the Lord with our hearts, but we're addressing one another. Uh, you've probably seen, you, you don't, you're not going to see it in any evangelical church in America, that's for sure. But if you like, go on YouTube, you can, you can see where like, certain churches have uh, one side of the church sing one thing and then the other side of the church sing another thing? Well, that actually grew out of this. That's them trying to figure out new and inventive, creative ways to carry out this command here in Scripture. This half of the church sings to that half of the church. Corporate singing is like a coin. On one side of the coin, you have mutual edification, right? So we're singing the truth to one another. We're reciting gospel realities to each other. We're looking forward to heaven together. We're speaking to each other to build each other up. Then on the other side of the coin, we have our worship of God. Now, Paul says that we can sing in our hearts as we sing to one another. Uh, I used to know a brother who I'm certain loved the Lord very much. Well, I still know the brother, and I'm still certain that he loves the Lord very much. But uh, this verse this morning was his scripture proof for why he didn't have to sing in church. He didn't want to sing. He always sat there stone-faced, and his main, he would always come back here. He'd be like, see, make melody to the Lord in your heart, right? I don't need to sing out loud. I make the melody to the Lord in my heart. But friends, I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here. I think what he's saying is something more along the lines of, as we sing out loud with our voices to one another, our heart's posture is also upwards towards God. We're also singing to the Lord in our hearts. And it's not just my interpretation of this one verse. I think you see this kind of language all throughout Scripture. So consider Psalm 73. Listen to the psalmist who I'm certain Paul would have had in mind as he says these things. The psalmist says, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also. So it's not just my lips that are singing, but it's my soul that's singing. It's not just external, it's also internal. And I think one of the reasons why Paul has to make this point, why, he, why, why does Paul say both of these things? Well, I think it's because God's people have a history of praising God externally, but not praising Him in their hearts. Right? If you read the Old Testament, it's just Time and time again, you see people who are giving, 
praying, fasting, singing, offering sacrifices, and all of it is external. But on the inside, there's no true worship. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah. So Isaiah was saying it to the people in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying it to people who are following him. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So here comes Paul. Don't just sing with your lips. Sing in your heart as well. This is why Jesus tells us that we must worship him in spirit and truth. You know, you, you, you don't want somebody, maybe you're in love with a, a young guy or a young girl. You tell them, I love you, and they don't say anything back. You guys fight about it. You apply the pressure. Finally, one day they go, okay, I love you. I love you. I love you. You don't want to hear that, right? What are you going to say in that situation? You're going to say, you know what, keep your words unless you really mean them. That's what God says to us. Now the opposite is also true. If we're gathered together as a body but don't address one another with the gospel, we are not singing as God has commanded. So do you remember God's plan for building the church back in Ephesians 4? Turn, turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. This is God's plan for building the church. It's deceptively simple. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So how is God building his church? By us speaking the truth to one another in love. And one of the main ways that we speak the truth to one another is through singing, we saw that in the verse from Colossians, right? We instruct one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We think about praise as just this thing that happens between us and God as if we're like in a phone booth. And, you know, I got a phone up to my ear and mouth and he's got a phone up to his ear and mouth. But no, there's a didactic nature to what happens when we sing. That means that when I sing to you and you sing to me, we are actually teaching each other. You should also know that this idea that when we as God's people get together to sing, that we're ministering to each other as well as worshiping God, this is not unique to Paul. This is not some like Pauline invention. It's not like Paul just had this really clever idea or insight one day while he was worshiping and then wrote it down. This, this comes from, it's all over the Old Testament. Let me just give you one example from Psalm 95. Listen to the psalmist. Now, by the way, this is a song for God's people. They're supposed to sing this together. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. The first line of the song, they're already addressing one another. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So at the same time, they're making a joyful noise and calling on each other to make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God. Okay, now they're just praising the Lord. And a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Now back to the people. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. (coughs) There's even a command in this song. They're supposed to be singing a command to each other. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, I think this is, I think the point has pretty much been arrived at, right? We, we see it pretty clear in Scripture, I think. Worship God 
instruct one another, edify one another. But what's not always clear is how we're supposed to take these general principles and apply them to our lives, especially our corporate lives together. So I want to give you five applications for this before we move on to our next point. Five applications. Number one, don't skip out on the singing. Don't skip out on singing. (coughs) It's not uncommon for people to treat the first few songs of a service as kind of their buffer for being late. I'm trying to look around the room without pausing on any one person in particular. Right? I'm just making eye contact with everyone. No one's guilty. We all show up perfectly on time. Right? No, but that's what we do. We treat the first few songs of a service, the introduction, the call to worship, if there is a call to worship in your church. We all just treat that as if like, oh yeah, that's my buffer. As long as I'm there in time for the sermon. Right? And I get that. Right? I am the guy who is not necessarily inclined to sing naturally. Like most people, I don't like to do things that I'm not good at. And anybody who's ever sung next to me in this church can tell you, I can't sing, right? (laughs) That's what you're supposed to be like, no, Sean, you do a great job. Love singing next to you. Support you. No, okay. But God is using music, your voice, to build his church. So don't skip out on that. Don't, don't cheat that ministry in the life of the church. Don't rob yourself from that ministry in the life of the church. Now you may be thinking, well, Sean, I'm sitting here and after we just sang four songs, I don't particularly feel like I've been built up more into maturity. Well, yeah, duh. It, it doesn't happen in one day. It happens over 20 years. When a community of people come together and they sing gospel truths to each other for decades on end, they are built up into health. Maybe you didn't feel the effects of it this Sunday, But what happens if you're here for a hundred Sundays singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another? Number two, learn to love to sing. Learn, I'm phrasing it this way on purpose, learn to love to sing. Now, some of you are like, dude, I don't have to learn to love to sing. I love to sing. You guys hear Amber every Sunday morning. Nobody has to encourage her to sing loudly. And you should know that there's not anything particularly spiritual about loving to sing. Some people just love to do it. Whether they're good at it or not, they're going to be doing it, and they're going to be doing it loudly. <clears throat> Other people, not so much. You know, I fall into the crowd of I don't necessarily love to sing, but I am learning how to love to sing. And I'm going to tell you why I have tried to learn to love to sing, and, and maybe you'll find this applicable for your own life. The first reason is that it's obvious that God loves singing, right? Not only does God sing over us like we read in Zephaniah, but God delights to have us sing to him. He commands it in scripture, and he doesn't command it like a boss who wants to meet a certain quota. He does it because it brings him joy to hear his people sing. So if God loves to sing, we should strive to love to sing as well. The second reason is that there will be singing in heaven, right? Turn with me to Revelation real quick. Last book of the Bible. We read from Revelation 15. I'm going to read from Revelation 5 as well. This amazing picture of heaven, starting in chapter 5, verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, excuse me, for God, 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here are God's people gathered around God's throne, and they are just lit up to be able to sing praises to God about their great salvation. So listen, if you don't love to sing, heaven's not going to be a place that you enjoy very much. C.S. Lewis was famous for talking about sin. You know, if you love sin, you're not going to like heaven because there's not going to be any sin there. If you, if you don't want God, you're really going to hate heaven because that's where God is, right? Same thing with singing. If you don't like to sing, and listen, I, listen, I get it. We, there's a bunch of stuff in heaven that we, we don't have now that we're struggling to learn to love, but singing is just one of those things. So why not just practice to enter into the fullness of joy that you're going to experience there? Number three, every time we sing something that's true, we are entering into a chorus of saints who have been celebrating God's grace since time immemorial. Now, that's not a scriptural argument. I just think that that's really cool. I just love to think about the fact that when I sing something that's true about my God and Savior, I'm joining in a chorus of people that are so great, I can't even number who have been singing those same things about God since before time even really began to be recorded. It's awesome. Number four, we should learn to love singing because the Bible tells us what it does, right? The Bible tells us that singing is something that God uses to build up the church. Well, that's really important. And you know what? If we love the church like Christ loves the church, then we should learn to love the things that build up his church. So Jesus loves singing. I'm going to try to learn to love singing because I see what it does. Now, the question that everyone wants to know is, what if I just don't feel like it? What if I just don't feel like it? I'm standing here, I've had a rough week, a tough time, I just don't feel like it. I get it. You should know that I've been battling depression this week. But here I am. And it's not, it's not because I'm better than anybody, it's not because I have more willpower, it's because I've trusted that following God in the fog and the confusion, the pain, the exhaustion, following him along the signposts of obedience is the clearest path out of the fog. It's the surest way to joy. You don't always have to feel like doing what God commands you to do. You may not feel the joy in the singing, but being obedient will always lead to joy. You may not feel like reading your Bible. You may not feel like gathering with the saints. You may not feel like praying. You may not feel like loving your wife sacrificially. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It means you do it and you pray, Lord, help me to find joy in this. And if, if I don't find it now, lead me through this into joy when I come out the other side. Okay, third point of application. <coughs> we need to sing theologically rich songs. All right, I'm not saying that every song needs to be an exposition of the Westminster Confession or the 1689 London Baptist Confession. But... The, the reality is, is that the church is only built up when we speak the truth to one another in love, right? In Ephesians 4, Paul doesn't say by speaking to one another in love, by being really nice, hey, brother, how's it going? Roll tide, amen, right? That's not what builds the church. It's nice. It, it's what makes like good little social groups. But what builds the church is speaking the truth to one another. And the same thing is true for our songs, I'm sure that we can all think of churches that love to sing but aren't particularly healthy. Well, why might that be? 
Could it be that they're just singing a bunch of songs that are full of man-centered nonsense? Just a bunch of spiritual gobbledygook? But man, did you hear that guitar? The drums, the stage lights, didn't that dude look cool? How amazing was her voice? So what? Now we should certainly strive for excellence, and you should know that we do. (laughs) Despite whatever happened in that fourth song we sang together this morning, (laughs) we strive for excellence in this church. But you know what? If everything else disappears and we just have songs coming out of our mouths that are true, God will be pleased and this body will be built up. If, if somebody comes and steals all of this equipment today, our worship will not be hindered in the slightest as we sing together. Number four, sing loudly. Yeah? Some of you guys are like, I don't know about this point. Sing loudly, chants. I need you to ramp it up a little bit. I'm standing right next to you. I can't hear you. The Bible says that we're supposed to be singing to one another. So I think an implication of that means that at bare minimum, the person next to you should be able to hear you. Now listen, if you're in a church where like the, the music is so loud, nobody can hear anything, God probably can't even hear you in heaven because the good drums are just rocking so hard, that's not what I'm talking about. And we're going to talk about instrumentation in a minute. But I mean... In a church where you should be able to hear people, you should sing loud enough so that at least the person standing next to you can hear you. But Sean, I can't sing to save my life. Well, sister, brother, neither can I. But you know what? When a whole bunch of God's people get together and sing, all of those voices sort of disappear. They just form into one big voice. And that voice always sounds lovely. Your voice disappears into the ocean of the voice of the congregation. My rule of thumb is this. Whenever I hear somebody singing off-key, when it's not myself, so there's somebody else around me who's singing off-key, I just try to sing louder, loud enough to drown them out. Now, what if they sing louder, loud enough to drown me out? Well, perfect. Pretty soon, the whole congregation is going to be singing as loud as they possibly can these big, bold, beautiful gospel truths to each other. Now, aside from that, you should also know that singing loudly is a command in Scripture. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy. As you read the Psalms over and over again, you see people who are not singing quietly to their God. Psalm 25, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Psalm 33, 1, shout for joy in the Lord. Psalm 33, 3, sing to him a new song, play skillfully, okay, on the strings and the harps with loud shouts. Psalm 35, 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. But like all of God's commands, right, we don't want to just be loud for the sake of being loud. There has to be an underlying reason why we can shout for joy. And in the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 71, I think we see that. And we saw some of it in some of these other psalms we read. Listen to Psalm 71, 23. My lips will shout for joy for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. How can, I, how can I learn to shout for joy as I sing? Well, you just have to consider the fact that you've been redeemed. You've been saved by God. That's what elicits the volume, the shout. Imagine yourself standing along a city wall 
in some faraway ancient Near Eastern land two or three thousand years ago. The troops have gone out to battle an army that is there to invade your city and take over the land and kill your family and institute corrupt policies and tax you until you're so poor you die. Okay, imagine that. <coughs> the army has gone out to fight this invading, uh, excuse me, this, to oppose this invading army and they've been gone for a long time. The fighting has been vicious. Supplies within the city have grown terrifyingly low. People are dying. You haven't seen your husband in months. You fear that he may be among the dead from the battle. Every day your children are asking you when their dad is going to come home. Late in the afternoon, every day, you, along with a number of citizens from the city, gather together at the edge of the city wall to watch the distance, to look out across the horizon, hoping and praying that across the horizon you'll see a dim figure with news from the front. Day after day, week after week, month after month, you and the rest of those people stand at that wall and wait. And then one day it happens. Someone sees a man's figure dot the horizon. His figure grows as he runs towards the city. All the people along the wall begin to murmur and chatter amongst themselves. As he gets closer, you can see that he's waving his arms. Now you can tell that he's shouting. You look around, you talk to your neighbors. Is it bad news? Is it good news? No one can tell. Finally, as the runner approaches the city gates, barely alive, you can begin to make out the words. He's saying, we won! We won! We've secured the victory! And then everybody along the wall shouts for joy. They just erupt in praise at the news of their great salvation. Do you think anyone along that wall at that moment in time was worried about the volume of their voice? Do you think anyone was worried about how they might have sounded as they responded to this news of salvation with the the unction of joy from deep within their... No, they don't care what they sound like. They don't care what anybody else sounds like. They're just going to celebrate. I think the real solution to singing well as a church, which I do think involves singing loudly, is less about vocal training and more about gospel mindfulness. People who are just constantly overjoyed at the thought of their great redemption in God are people who won't have a hard time responding to God in song. But there is one thing that I think we can do practically to help us with that, which brings me to my fifth application point. We have to adjust the volume and instrumentation accordingly to allow this to take place. Right? My favorite part of almost any song is when the music drops out and you can just hear the voice of the congregation. Nevertheless, I love instruments. I know that they are useful. The Old Testament talks about people using instruments, says play your cymbals loudly, all that stuff. I think there's going to be instruments in heaven as we worship. Praise God for that. But we have to make sure, in light of what this text teaches us, that the instrument most heard as we sing together on a Sunday morning is the instrument of the human voice. Our collective voice needs to be louder than all of the other instruments up here together. And if your instruments are abundant enough and loud enough, there's just no way that that's going to be possible. So you have to adjust that accordingly. 
So, guitars, drums, xylophone, whatever your church uses in worship, the band cannot be the most prominent sound on any given Sunday morning. All right, moving on to the next and final point, Thanksgiving. Paul says in our verses this morning that when we are full of the Spirit, we will give thanks always and for everything. Look at verse 20. Chapter 5. Oh, I'm still in Revelation. All right, going back to Ephesians. Chapter 5. Verse 20. It says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul communicates the same idea in Colossians 2 where he says that we should be overflowing with thankfulness, right? That's what always and ever, uh, always and for everything it means. It's just we're constantly being thankful to God. If you're like me and you read this, uh, you probably think, wow, I must not be full of the Spirit at all. I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. That's not in my notes. I shouldn't have gone for it. You know, uh, how do we do that? How do we go from being people like we are, who are not as thankful as we ought to be, to being more like Paul, somebody who just seems like he's always overflowing with thankfulness? I'm not sure that I'm the best one to answer this, uh, because I'm probably never going to get there, but here's my best shot from what I see in the Bible. Thankfulness grows out of a deep awareness that we have been treated better than we deserve. Thankfulness grows out of a deep awareness that we have been treated better than we deserve. The truth is, if God were to mete out his justice today, what we would deserve is nothing less than the penalty for our sins, death and hell. We were dead in our sins. Our hearts were hardened to God. We were enemies of God. We, his subjects, rebelled against him and tried to overthrow his kingdom. Our mouths that were formed so that we could sing praises to his name were used to blaspheme his name. Our bodies that were formed to glorify him were used to practice evil. God made us to follow him, to reflect his glory, and instead we followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed our own flesh. We followed the ways of this fallen world. As Paul says in Romans 1, and this is almost verbatim, I'm just changing out the pronouns to make them possessive plural when necessary. We were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. We were gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. We invented ways of doing evil. We disobeyed our parents. We had no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And it is God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. But to quote Paul from earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, because of the great love with which God loved us, because he is rich in mercy, he has made us alive together with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. And he raised us up in Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace to us. So if you have been saved from the penalty of sin, 
by Christ and his work on the cross, how can you not be overflowing with thankfulness? If you're here this morning and you don't understand what I'm talking about, all these things that I've said about practicing evil, you think, oh, that's not me. Well, I would just encourage you to come up and talk to somebody after the service. Maybe go grab lunch with one of the members of the church. See what God's word has to say about you and how you view yourself. Maybe as I'm talking about thankfulness, you realize that you don't really have much to give thanks for. Maybe that's just because you don't realize how kind God has been to you. It's not just what God has done, but also what God secures for us in light of what he has done. That should lead us to be thankful. Listen to the author of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Wow. But friends, it's so easy for us to become dull to this reality, to forget just how kind God has been to us in Christ. That's one of the reasons I love to go preach at the county jail. I sit there with these women and I open up God's word and I'm reminded that at one point in time, I was sitting there in county jail clothes. I wore those sandals. I was waiting for money to come on my books. I was awaiting my arraignment hearing. We cannot become dull to this reality, to lose sight of how amazing God's grace really is. And that is why we have to be constantly filling ourselves with the Spirit by feasting on Christ, feasting on his word. And when we do, we will not forget this glorious gospel. Now, there's one line that you'll notice that we haven't touched on this morning. It's verse 21, where it says that the result of being filled with the Spirit is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, what you're going to see is that throughout the rest of chapter 5 and on into chapter 6, we see Paul flesh that out. He talks about what it looks like to submit in marriage. He talks about what it looks like to submit to authority in the family. And he looks, talks about what it looks like for masters and bondservants to submit to one another in Christ and how that all works out. And that's what we're going to begin to talk about next week. Look forward to seeing you there. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we want to do what you want us to do, but we don't want to do it with a cold heart. We want to do it because we feel it And so we pray that you would help us to feel deeply how we ought to feel about these things. We ask that you would do the only thing that you can do as God, which is change our hearts. We can't change our own hearts. The world can't change our hearts. Money, punishment, nothing can change our affections, but you can, Lord. So we pray that you would change our affections so that we would be a people who respond to your grace appropriately. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.